welcome to another episode of Free Lunch, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the topics that matter most across Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Sarah Martinica. And I'm Taylor Scollin. So, Taylor, you've actually accomplished something that I think many listeners of this podcast, I think, hope to do one day, which is to start a business. Not an easy thing to pull off, is it? Uh, You know, it has its challenges. I do think that people kind of um, talk up how difficult it is to to start and operate a business a little bit. Like there's some uh, social cachet and talking about you know, grinding and the hustle mindset, which yeah. I don't think is necessarily always very accurate. Um, but uh, yeah, it certainly comes with its its share of, of challenges. Yeah. Well, your journey has been an interesting one to watch. And I feel like entrepreneurship more broadly is this thing that's on everyone's minds lately, basically, because everyone wants to make more money. Everyone wants to do their own thing. And it's hard for me to wrap my head around it because when I log on to social media, I see like one blueprint for entrepreneurship and it's this, right? It's like you acquire a laundromat or you acquire a vending machine business and then you take your millions and millions of dollars of profit from those businesses and then you put it into like cash generating Airbnb properties located just outside of Austin, Texas. And to me, that's like the blueprint that I'm getting from all online. And so that's not a lot to... To, to work with, unfortunately, and I think all the yeah. laundromats might have be might be bought by now. Yeah, maybe not the most inspiring uh, way to motivate someone to you know go out and spend a good chunk of their life either. Maybe not everyone wants to own a vending machine empire, uh, but you know we have a guest on today who I think has a different approach to entrepreneurship and maybe a more uh, fulfilling one for people who are motivated, uh, not exclusively by potential financial returns, although I'm sure that is a part of the equation. Our guest today is uh, Cordell Jacks. He's a serial social entrepreneur, CEO, and general partner of the Regenerative Capital Group. And he's on the show today to talk about his business model, which is uh, quite an interesting one, I think, for people who want to get into entrepreneurship, but maybe don't want to start from scratch and do want to do it with some social purpose as well as a profit-motivated one. So Cordell, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here, Taylor. So I do want to have a pretty uh, broad and wide-ranging conversation here, but I think it would be good to start narrow and specific on your business in particular. Can you tell us about the business model of regenerative capital? What is it that you do and what makes it unique? Yeah, thanks for asking. Regenerative Capital Group is an innovative social impact fund. The fund is really based on the premise of ETA, entrepreneurship through acquisition. Whereas here in Canada, we have this wonderful startup, new venture ecosystem for entrepreneurship. Incubators, accelerators, funding for every stage of the growth journey. We, we, We have a great, wonderful, supportive ecosystem. And yet, uh, our neighbors to the south of us have been on to something for the past 30 years. They've been training their entrepreneurs at Ivy League business schools in this alternative entrepreneurial career path. Instead of going out and starting up a risky startup, uh, let's look at the macro economy. There's a lot of good, small, medium enterprises out there. There's a lot of ownership succession challenges. Why not go buy a small business and take that forward and make it a great business? And so that's really what ETA, entrepreneurship through acquisition, is all about. 
Our fund is really looking at acquiring businesses for social entrepreneurs going forward. We've put out an impact and investment thesis to say, hey, if you're an entrepreneur that wants to make real impact in the world, we want to buy you a company. You don't need to have any capital uh, up front. We will acquire a company for you. We are sector agnostic. Go out, find a good small medium enterprise and an owner that's looking for a succession. Acquire that business. And then we will work with you to take that business on what we call a regenerative impact journey. How can you look at all material areas of impact of the business? How can you drive that forward in a good way that creates net positive impact? And if you do that, we're going to invest equity in that company for you. So we're here to support these entrepreneurs with leadership, regenerative leadership training, with capital and a wider ecosystem of investors, advisors, and support to make sure that they succeed and that they can take these businesses uh, towards their, their, their ultimate value-creating potential. And when you talk about the regenerative aspect of that and those impacts, what specifically are you looking at? Yeah, it's a great question. So rather than a social impact fund, which uh, can have different lenses, you know, decarbonization, looking at water, looking at circular economy, we don't come in with prescriptive measures or tick boxes of, of what these entrepreneurs need to achieve. And part of that, that methodology is, is assuming that we, uh, or presuming that we, we actually know what the, the right answers are to see a whole ecosystem transformed to positive impact. And so what we really do here is, is look at, with an entrepreneur, we don't know what type of business they're going to buy. Many entrepreneurs go into a search process of looking for a business, uh, of thinking that they're going to acquire a business in one industry or another, and then acquiring a, a totally different business. Something crosses mm -hmm. their path that they pick up. When looking at what the impact means uh, for that business that they acquire, they ultimately have to go in and, and look at the legacy culture that they're going to be inheriting look at the unique ecosystem that business has touch points in. So that not being just customers and employees and resources that the, the business might be dependent on for its value creation strategies, but also what are the communities that this, these businesses are nested in? Where are their touch points there? What are all their relations in terms of material areas of impact? And how can they, as a unique culture, determine where they're uniquely positioned to take on bigger issues. And, and when I say bigger issues, some of these bigger issues that we're facing as a civilization and as an economy right now, you know, how do we deal with biosphere degradation or climate change or widespread mental health issues or rising inequality, any of these issues? What is the unique platform of the company, culture, and context to which these entrepreneurs can ultimately take a wider systems lens for driving impact. And so it's, it's, it's really an emergent strategy that is hmm. completely contextual based on who they are, the businesses they acquire, and all other aspects of the ecosystem. Interesting. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the differences between the entrepreneurial landscape between the U.S. and Canada. The attitudes are, are very different. So in your view, how do we even go about kind of bridging the gap there? And maybe if we could start even by talking about why there are such big differences between the way that we approach entrepreneurship? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. So let me start by saying, you know, the, the, the genesis of this fund was, again, looking at our, our neighbors to the south of us and saying, hey, there's 35 business schools that are teaching ETA, and we don't have, at the time of our launch, any business schools teaching this approach. Why is that? 
And so, first of all, uh, there's been many good learnings in the past 30, 35 years of what's been evolving uh, south of the border from us. And this, this asset class, this idea of take a good business and make it greater, has demonstrated some incredible successes. You know, take a young, hungry, ambitious entrepreneur, surround them with good capital, give them a good business, give them good investors and advisors. Yeah, and they've been returning like 35% IRR on average across those 35 years of history. Wow. That's wonderful. And yet, uh, there's a number of challenges to that model, which is, you know, throughout these, these, uh, these past 30-some years, we've seen that it's a male, 90% male, white-dominated area of, of entrepreneurship and development. Uh, it's quite inclusive uh, in terms of those who are taking on this approach. Uh, access to capital is one of those things. So there's a number of uh, systemic factors, and we won't get into any of those as to why that looks the way it does uh, south of the border. But here in Canada, we have the opportunity to to leapfrog some of that and really plant our own flag in terms of leveling the clay, playing field to capital and, and the wider opportunities that are here. So from my perspective, if I was looking to launch a business, I would say that I would approach it the same way that most people would. I have to like roll up my sleeves and start from scratch. And so I'm wondering, I mean, what are the the barriers here when it comes to people considering acquisition as something that they could pursue in order to launch a business and not having to go through the grind of like starting from the very beginning? Yeah, often at first glance, this opportunity sounds too good to be true. Wait it a minute, does. I don't need to bring any capital to the table. Someone wants to acquire a business that already has market fit and traction for me. I get to step in as a leader with vested equity and grow this business forward. Why would I? Why would I go through the startup grind? Why would I go through uni- unicorn culture funding and and all that that is challenging there? Why would I go through a eighty percent failure rate where? Uh, the number of people who actually start a search process uh, and acquire, successfully acquire a company is almost 70%. Those who actually do acquire a business, the success rates of those individuals is, again, almost 80% of those individuals. Wow. And that's just um, traditional search funds and tradi- one, one aspect of this model. So the numbers are, are really, really good here. Now, all of that does sound too good to be true. Uh, in some ways, but I got to say, this is not a path for the faint of heart. This is entrepreneurship. Uh, this is almost as hard as startup culture. And let me just make it clear, like those who start up and take something zero to one, kudos, like we need you. This is an important part of our ecosystem. I'm not bashing uh, that. This is, this is always going to be an important part of innovation and growth of our economy. For those that take this ETA entrepreneurial, uh, alternative entrepreneurial career path, going and finding a company is challenging. It's a game of reps. It's looking at hundreds of businesses, talking to brokers, talking to business owners, getting them to entrust you with their legacy, with their baby, letting them know that you're the right steward of everything they've created in their life to take forward their you know, social capital and all the relationships they've developed. That's, that's a hard part, let alone doing due diligence on a company, ensuring that you're buying a good business, not a lemon. And then if you're, if you're fortunate enough to actually get someone to sell you their business and you've put the capital through and you've done all the homework, then the really hard work begins. Stepping into a legacy culture, you know, you're going to buy a business. Hopefully you're buying a good business, which means things have been working well in that business. You're not there to come in and tear it up. 
but you are there to steward the company and the culture and the legacy relations onto the next chapter. One way or another, this is an inflection point and it's a, a change going forward for the business. So stepping in, change management, new relations, all of that. This is a, this is a hard roller coaster of, of good days, bad days, like any other entrepreneurship journey. It's just uh, this path seems to be well more, way more nurtured and supported uh, with the business, with the investors, with the advisors who can support these entrepreneurs on this journey. You know, I, I read about these, uh, the strategy of buying businesses that I've been running for a long time. And one of the things that people say is, you know, you want to find a business that makes money, but still uses a fax machine. And I don't know if that's true or not. So I'm curious, what do you look for when you're looking for target businesses? Is there a specific model or it does it vary pretty widely? Yeah, I, th- I think what you're speaking to there is is go find a business that is successful despite it, despite itself. It hasn't upgraded technologies, and yeah. you know if you upgrade technologies, it's going to be even more successful. It hasn't got great finance systems or accounting systems, and you update those, and then you're making even better decisions in a business. And and that that is all great. There's another component to that, which is you know a lot of this this model has has been built on unsexy businesses go buy a laundromat go buy something that is you know often overlooked but is a great money making machine and and many people have done that they've they've been this model has been really industry or sector agnostic people buy businesses in the most unique uh, niches niches and uh, you know uh, turn them into good businesses they're usually in this in this sector. You have businesses that are five hundred thousand to five million in earnings. Anything less than that, and you're kind of buying a job, not a business that you can grow. Mm-hmm. Anything more than that, you're starting to play into higher level, higher strata private equity markets, and you're paying much higher uh, market multiples uh, on the business. And so this is kind of a an often overlooked sweet spot. These businesses are usually, you know, they've got some recurring cash flow. They're usually in fragmented industries, meaning there's not a big Walmart or Amazon that can just knock you out with the swoop of a pen. Um, and oftentimes, yeah, there there is some management teams and systems that you've got, you know, systems to grow with. But in all of that, we're looking at, uh, we're, we're talking about these businesses from a traditional, conventional business as usual standpoint. And that's really not core to the thesis of what we're doing with Regenerative Capital Group. Looking at good businesses, you know, that's that's one thing. And, and our partners in the in the firm have had a lot of success in doing that. What we're truly looking for are those entrepreneurs and individuals who are looking for meaningful impact, meaningful purpose in their career, addressing you know these big poly crisis existential issues that we're facing as a as a society and as an economy, and and that ultimately means looking at these businesses from what we call a regenerative impact potential or a regenerative value creation potential. How does taking a wider lens beyond just profit maximization and bottom line ultimately deliver competitive advantage, ultimately give these entrepreneurs the opportunity to create wider societal and systemic value uh, beyond the bottom line? Is there like an example of a, a specific business or type of business that you think fits that criteria because a lot of the ones that you traditionally hear about like i'm going to buy a vending machine company or i'm going to buy a laundromat uh it's hard for me to see the potential like how those intersect with some of the broader issues that you're trying to grapple with as as part of 
your model. Um, so where does that intersection happen? Like what's the overlap in that Venn diagram? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer your question in two parts here. The first part is ultimately we need wholesale economic transition towards a regenerative, economic, a regenerative economy. And so that means most businesses need to move into this paradigm shift of looking at all their areas of responsibility and how are they ultimately not just transacting value and, and potentially doing less harm uh, than you know their predecessors, but ultimately how does any business look at its core purpose, its core essence as contributing to wider value creation in society? So that's, that's the bigger lens, which means we should be able to do this with most businesses in most mm-hmm. sectors. And if not, then there is a question of whether we should be transitioning or trying to evolve those businesses forward. But to your point, let's take a laundromat, for example. You know, there's very good cases of looking at a laundromat business, which is often a degenerative business. Lots of chemicals, lots of, you know, poor working conditions, uh, non-living wages, all of these things. Like, is that a good business? Would you be a proud business owner to say, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm paying people non-living wages. We're polluting the water systems by using massive chemicals. Our industry and processes are are all not even not that harmful, but quite harmful. Many of those businesses, dry cleaning and otherwise, have really turned those uh, liabilities into competitive advantage opportunities by saying we are a chemical-free dry cleaning business. We support these types of systems change. And ultimately, any type of business in any sector that starts to look at these challenges and create ambassadorship and goodwill in their clients and their employees, people who can come to work saying, I'm coming for a greater purpose than just a paycheck, ultimately create solidarity economies, ultimately create, you know, champions within their organization and the wider value chains around them. And they just become doing good business becomes better business, more profitable. And that's ultimately what we're out there to prove, uh, regardless of sector and wherever these entrepreneurs want to, you know, put their life's work and, and these acquisitions. I'm so happy you mentioned that because it does, sitting on Twitter, I'm like relentlessly peppered with the like, if you are not starting a vending machine company, like what are you even doing with your life? You're leaving money on the on the table. And it's 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 nice to, you know, because it, it does, you know, it does feel like the people who did that, that's so um that's so great, but there are kind of limitations to kind of the the broader impact that you can have. And so through that lens, what are some of the companies in your space that you're looking at maybe you could give us some examples of like sectors or you know types of operations that you're looking at that kind of achieve the goals that you're talking about but can like help us picture what types of businesses you're eyeing yeah so you're going to be sadly disappointed with with my answer to this question i mean there's two parts to this to your first part uh you know you're leaving money on the table there's economic opportunity here and there I think it's really time for not just our generation, but everyone to wake up. There's a lot of ways to make money. Value extraction, we can do that in so many degenerative ways. And so if you want to do that, go for it. But I think the bigger question is, what time is it? What time is it in the broader context of the issues we're dealing with? What time is it in terms of why are you making this money? What do you hope to do with it? What do you hope to leave? What, you know, how are you going to steward what's there for you? And, and we've got some issues to, to tackle. So I think if you're not doing that, the question is, what are you doing? What are, what, where are you? What's the trajectory of your trajectory of your life? And so, when it comes down to the specifics of what type of sector and industry are we looking at? Again, this ETA model is not a prescriptive model. Prescription has really been 
a commodified approach of, of, of doing things and commodified food, commodified ways of transacting business, commodified uh, prescriptive approaches is what's kind of gotten us into these bigger issues uh, and problems that we're dealing with. So when we look at the ETA model, its success is dependent on the entrepreneur. How do we empower the entrepreneur who's ultimately going to be the true value creator, who's ultimately going to be the catalyst to taking these businesses forward and generating some of that net positive systems transformation, some of that net positive impact? We don't, we're not going to tell them what type of business to buy. You tell us. We're, we're going to support you. What, how do we support you to co-design this regenerative impact journey for the business? How do we support you to create a wider lens on value creation? And so that's where ultimately we're going to be sector agnostic, sector agnostic, but we're going to be entrepreneur focused. We got to find the right people with the right character, the right grit, all of those entrepreneurial characteristics we'd be looking for in the leadership of a startup. But ultimately, first and foremost, values alignment. Are you here to make the impact that we need to see in our economy? When you're going through this process, do you start with finding a business that makes sense and then finding an entrepreneur to operate it? Or is it the reverse? Do you start with an entrepreneur who aligns with those sorts of values that you're talking about and then go out and work with them to find a business? Yeah, so it's entrepreneur first. Uh, find the right person and again, set them up on a mission of, of searching for and acquiring uh, a good business. That, that process can often take you know, upwards of 18 months and there's an important aspect in that process where an entrepreneur goes out, learns how to do due diligence, learns how to speak with business owners, learns about you know, what it takes to, to buy a good business, buying a good business, what are the characteristics of it. All of that is kind of training for the ultimate responsibility of stepping into that CEO mm. role. So it's an important aspect of the learning development for these entrepreneurs. So again, it's it's very focused uh, on the entrepreneur first and then allow them to go forward and flourish in whatever type of business. And, and that's kind of the core characteristic of grit. Whatever the learning journey, whatever the obstacle, are they going to hurdle it? Uh, that's what we're looking for. And just to say, you know, Regenerative Capital Group, we just closed our application process for our first cohort. We had uh, 170 applicants for what is upwards of six positions in our first cohort. Uh, and so now as this cohort begins with us in January of 2024, the next step will be we're the business owners that want to turn over and sell their legacy to entrepreneurs that are going to steward it towards, you know, wider value creation potential. And that's that'll be our next search. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the finances in a deal like this as far as so if someone's, you know, going to approach a small kind of business that meets the uh, financial picture that you've kind of painted. What are like what are the next steps, and what does that transaction look like? And then maybe you could tell us how it actually looks like within the program that you're rolling out next year. Yeah, sure. So first, I'll say that every business acquisition is a complete, unique beast unto itself, and there's a lot of contextual factors. But there are some broad strokes we can paint here. This type of of purchase uh, is of three different aspects because these are good businesses that the entrepreneurs are buying. That means they're very financeable. So oftentimes, uh, the entrepreneur will purchase the business with upwards of 50% debt here in Canada. In the U.S., we'll see that uh, range even upwards of 90% debt. And most banks who work with these businesses want to see their, their clients go forward. They know they're good businesses. They've been working with them a long time. And so their banks will often say, yeah, we'll finance you to, to purchase this business with 50% debt. Hmm. Another 25% of the acquisition is often done with uh, a seller's note meaning the person who is selling the business 
is often asked to stay invested in the business with 25% equity. So if at any point over the next, let's say, five years, the entrepreneur who acquires the business can't pay back the debt, the, the past owner can take the business back. And why, why seller's notes are so often used is because one, you know, we as a fund or as an entrepreneur going in to buy a business, you want to make sure you're not buying a lemon. You want to make sure that uh, there's vested interest from the past owner, ensuring that there's a successful transition of their company, their legacy going forward. And so keeping some skin in the game on their part is an important part of that. And then finally, if 50% is debt, 25% is the seller's note, the last 25% is equity from a fund. So, you know, as a fund standpoint, we're, we're really leveraging, you know, every dollar uh, four times uh, in the acquisitions we make. What that looks like to an individual entrepreneur, again, entrepreneurs that don't need to bring any capital to the table, we as a fund completely are the majority uh, acquirer of the business. And then over time, these entrepreneurs usually vest 25% equity. How do they do that? It's usually done in, in three tranches. So on the day they acquire the business, they get a third of that 25% equity. So they're meaningful owners from day one in the business. Usually the next third is acquired over a period of around three years. And for our fund, that looks a little bit different. Usually it's you know based on growth metrics and traditional hurdles uh, and growth rates. For our fund, 50% of that will be on some of those traditional metrics. But the other 50% is going to be on, on the regenerative impact uh, that they make. And, and that, again, will be co-designed together. We're never going to ask an entrepreneur to commit to something that they wouldn't you know, uh, reasonably want to commit to. They have to be completely empowered and, and bought into the impact and change and development that they want to grow. So that's the second, uh, second tranche. And then the third tranche is usually over six to seven years. Again, 50% on growth and 50% on the regenerative value creation journey they take the business on. So after six or seven years, these entrepreneurs have 25% ownership of their acquisition. And oftentimes what you'll see is these entrepreneurs, you know, they learn the skill sets to acquire a business. They don't want to just see that go uh, not to use. And so they'll, they'll, they'll purchase other businesses. There'll be more inorganic growth, bolt-ons bolt or roll-ups of similar businesses that support the overall value creation of what they're, what they're after. Hmm. Let's talk about some of the uh, businesses that are going through this transition period right now. You know, you read a lot of stories about this wave of uh, "quote unquote" boomer businesses, and a lot of people who started businesses maybe thirty, forty years ago now beginning to retire and looking at succession. Uh, can you give us a sense of the scale of that sort of succession that's happening right now, like? How many businesses are going to be going on the market in the near future? Yeah, I can give you some broad strokes numbers here. In, in Canada, we're looking at 76% of small, medium enterprise owners looking to retire in the next decade. Of that, uh, upwards of 90% do not have a succession plan. That equates to like almost 700,000 businesses that are going to be changing hands or looking to have changed hands that don't have an heir apparent, you know, a manager or someone within the business that's that's ready or willing to take over the acquisition or can fund the acquisition. There's no child in the family who's ready to take over the business. And so what that means is there's uh, an incredible inflection point coming towards us here in Canada. We have, uh, you know, a, a succession opportunity here or a succession crisis. The crisis is some of these businesses 
uh, they don't get sold. They get, you know, they don't get acquired. They get sold for assets. You know, someone gets sick in the family or someone has to caretake for another family member and the business has to be closed down. That's not just a sad uh, thing for the business owner. That's a sad thing for, you know, their employees, their clients, the wider value chains. It's, it's an economic loss, a social capital loss for us. We don't want to see that happen. But again, reframing it, this is this is the opportunity and this is kind of core to our theory of change and our impact, impact and investment thesis as a fund. One way or another in the next decade, the lifeblood of our Canadian economy is changing hands. It can go to private equity, which, you know, uh, oftentimes will just go for extractive value at its, its quickest, most short-term decision-making capacity. Or from our fund standpoint, let's let's upgrade this leadership. Let's get a next generation of hungry entrepreneurs to steward the legacy of these businesses. Let's upgrade the capital. Let's give them the breathing space to to take these businesses on a wider journey, and then let's give let's upgrade the DNA of these businesses so that truly we are using business as a force for good. Our economy is transitioning so that we anything we're doing is ultimately net positive in terms of its impacts. So that's that's ultimately what we're after here, and that's that's what we're really excited about with this silver tsunami, as it's it's often mm. deemed. You know, this big succession opportunity coming over these next ten years. I'm curious to know whether this is a Canadian problem. I'm just wondering about the culture, since you mentioned that there's more of a culture towards these types of acquisitions in the states. Is is that why we haven't read about a similar succession wave there? You know. <laughs> It's a really interesting question because I don't know about you two, but I, I grew up in the 80s. Like we knew this was coming. We we knew the demographics. We knew the baby boomer uh, generational issues that were coming. And yet, you know, when I went across business schools and across Canada to ask them, were they teaching ETA? None of them were. Why weren't we ready for this? Why was the U.S. ahead of the game on us? Um, so there, there's that question, which you know, M&A has been done. Uh, this is just a form of M&A. This is a form of preparing the next generation to do this not from non-traditional standpoints. Uh, I think there's a, a secondary question here, which is even though the U.S. is a little bit ahead of us in terms of the development of this ecosystem, why has it not been used for wider social impact? And I think that the answer in that question is, well, from a traditional standpoint, they're getting 35% IRR, historical average return. From a conventional business standpoint, they're winning. Why nudge you know, a good thing out of its, its box? Why you know, test, uh, test fate and luck? But you know, 35% is a banana's return. If we were getting 25% and you know, addressing wider societal issues and impact and e- ecology and all of these different things, we'd still be doing incredibly well. But I don't think it's a question of, do we have to take a loss on what has been a good asset class? It's, can we demonstrate an even better value creation strategy as we go into a very VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, disruptive landscape for most businesses uh, in these coming years? Are there any like legal or policy issues here that maybe business owners in the States uh, don't have to contend with? You know, it, some of the stuff that we've talked about kind of reminds me of another episode we did around uh, worker cooperative ownership of businesses and the framework for establishing those here seems to be much more complicated and costly than it is in some other uh, places around the world. So is there a similar problem uh, here that needs to be addressed with this model? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, that's kind of the the bigger opportunity I think that we have uh, from a policy and enabling environment here in Canada. In the U.S., they have things like the SBA, Small Business Administration Loans. This allows entrepreneurs to go in and acquire small medium enterprises with upwards of 90% debt financing. So those that don't have the capital can truly, you know, uh, leverage themselves to take advantage of a good opportunity there. That's a federally funded opportunity in the U.S. as well. Uh, I'm sure I'm not sure who your guest was. I'm hoping it was John Shell and and some of the work he's doing around it. It was someone who works with his programs. organization. Yeah. Yeah, so social capital partners and others are doing a great job. We're not there yet in Canada in terms of looking at how can the employees of businesses acquire the business as the legacy owners are looking to to succeed. That is something we absolutely need here in Canada. It's a fantastic opportunity that's proven itself in the United States and the UK, and we just don't have the tax incentives uh, or legislation to see that facilitated well. But uh, my fingers are crossed that we're going to get there. So ultimately, you know, I, I think this should be uh, a politician's uh, incredible opportunity and dream uh, dream space because with a little bit of enabling environment support, we can really, again, uh, set our ecosystem up to, to not have crisis here, but real opportunity and involving our economy forward. I'm curious about... Uh, I guess on behalf of listeners that would be curious, I'm sure many people are listening to you talk about this and like the wheels are turning, like how can I, you know, get into this? Maybe they haven't even thought about this as an as an option for them. And so I'm wondering, you know, for the average person that, like you said, hasn't been to business school or even if they have, they didn't have an entrepreneurship option available to them. Like what are the steps that they would need to take to even start to get familiar about this space, start to get familiar with like how to look at businesses, like how do they get their their feet wet, I guess? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. From, from an entrepreneur standpoint, definitively you have to have uh, some business acumen. And so, you know, you, you need to be able to look at the financial statements of, of a business and know whether you're buying a lemon or, a, or an incredible company. Um, but those are things that are easily trained. Those are things that most people can pick up. And, and this entrepreneurial journey is a, just a rocket ship of continued learning. How do you work with your due diligence teams? How do you work with management? How do you work with new legacy cultures? Like, For those that have true entrepreneurial talents and grit, they're just going to pick up and learn whatever needs to be learned for the situation and context at hand. But again, as the operator and leader and steward of a business, you need to know how to make good decisions. And that's going to involve, you know, business acumen and, and, and the ability to, to understand where to put capital and where how to make better decisions uh, based on some of that. Otherwise, you know, if for, for non-entrepreneurs, there's, there's a whole other ecosystem of, of players and partners here that are developing around the bigger systems change efforts around, you know, wider economic transition to a regenerative economy. So those who are investors, you know, uh, learning about regenerative business principles, what does it mean to get a uh, good return while fostering systemic uh, impact and change for those that are uh, investor advisors, for those later in life who uh, want to invest in next gen entrepreneurs and be active advisors, you know, support them in their decision making. They've got, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be on the ropes in their learning journey of running small businesses? How can they use their wisdom and experience to support this next gen uh, in doing so as well? And then from wider supports in the environment uh, who want to see this ecosystem really flourish, uh, my, my easy answer is get in contact with us at Regenerative Capital Group and we'd be happy to, to share more. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great place to leave it. I think if people want to find out more about your program, uh, where should where should they go? What's the website? www.regenerativecapitalgroup.com. You can send an, in, an email to info at regenerativecapitalgroup.com. And uh, otherwise, you can sign up for a newsletter on the website and, and learn more about entrepreneurship through acquisition, regenerative business principles, and, and our fund and, and how we're going to be uh, supporting this wider systems change effort. Okay, Cordell, that was really interesting. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for, for having me here. All right, Sarah. Well, I don't know about you, but I found that to be a an interesting conversation. And I'm always a little bit, what's the word? Cynical, maybe? A little bit cynical about businesses with social purpose. You know, when you see like Wendy's talking about their uh, charitable works or, or ESG or that sort of thing. Not to call out Wendy's in particular. That was just an example of a business that came to mind. No, we get it. You hate Wendy's. There's no, you know, we're not sponsored by Wendy's, but I'm open to it. Just sort of any businesses that talk about this. But what I thought was really interesting about uh, what Cordell was talking about was how they sort of set these metrics and goals for community impact and social impact that are tied to the incentives that the entrepreneurs who are operating these businesses. Um, tied to the incentives that the entrepreneurs who are operating these businesses can benefit from, just right. like profitability metrics or earnings metrics. That seemed like a really interesting approach to me and maybe something that makes this whole model a little bit more concrete than uh, some of the other efforts that we've seen in the space. Yeah, what well, did you I think? was also, I was very inspired by that as well. Like we mentioned this at the top of the call, we talked about it throughout, right? It just seems like uh, these businesses have kind of boiled down to like this mathematical equation of like, am I just making the most money possible? And a lot of these kind of schemes that you see kind of pop up as much as they are and the people who get behind them are just incredible business people. Like this is no shot at them, but there is a part that I think to a normal person, they're like, well, I maybe can't get into that. That maybe won't be, you know, fulfilling for me or is not my thing. And, but like that shouldn't stand in the way of, you know, them being able to make, you know, lots and lots of money. Yeah. Well, it'll be really interesting. And I'm curious to see what businesses end up coming out of this first, I suppose, cohort of six that uh, Cordell was, was talking about. And I think the other point that he made, which I hadn't really considered before, is that all of these boomer owned businesses, they, something has to happen with them, right? A lot of these places are, they employ people in their community. Um, they account for a lot of the economic activity in the country. Totally. And he was right when, you know, you say they can shut down or they can get rolled up by some private equity firm that is really just purely profit motivated. So if there is another model that does provide more social benefit, more community benefit, I'm all for it. The thing that stands out to me, though, is like a barrier to most people is that, I mean, it's great that the bank will give you like up to 50% to, of debt to put towards the business. That's It's crazy to me also that if you go to the States, that number goes up to 90%. Maybe we can talk about that for a second. Yeah. Um, but what, what stood out to me, right, is just that like that 25%, that's still 
I think falls on on people right to 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 raise and and, and to finance. And so um, you pointed out some interesting things about how you know there are certain there are certain barriers still that remain around like fi- like fundraising and even from like a policy perspective that will stop people from from doing this. But like, hey, I guess it depends on. The business that you're that, that you're looking to acquire, maybe for some people, that twenty five percent is feasible. Yeah, I mean that's a huge that's a huge barrier for sure. You know, if you're talking about a business that's say valued at ten million dollars, twenty five percent of that, two and a half million bucks, pretty difficult for a lot of people to come up with that sort of cash. So there does need to be some sort of bridge, I think, for these uh, businesses that don't have a succession plan in place, which was sort of an astonishing uh, number that I hadn't considered before. Yeah, well, very interesting. I think that's a good place to leave it. Okay, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. If you want more episodes like this, you can find all of our past episodes, almost 50. We're verging on almost 50 episodes at this point uh, by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do consider leaving us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us grow the show a lot. And we will see you next week.